I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to episode 29 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my life's dream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret – never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And this week, an episode dedicated to the Jam Scrapbook, a unique project from blogger Jill Webb from Hull in England and Steve Hinders from Ohio, USA. Listen to me play the part of Cilla Black for a very special, surprise, surprise, episode of the podcast. Back in the 1980s, inspired by Paul Weller, Jill wrote and edited a music and poetry fanzine called Kindred Spirit. In 2020, her world changed completely thanks to a social media connection with Steve. What follows are stories of a shared love of the best band in the effing world, along with some amazing tales of spending time with the Weller family, correspondence with Paul, journeys with the Jam Army, and so much more. So let's get into it. Thanks for joining us, Jill. You're very welcome, and thank you for inviting me. You're not only a super fan, but you're my first guest who has never met Paul. That's correct, yeah. So you are desperately seeking Paul as well, right? <laughs> you could say that, yes. <laughs> it, would be, it would be rather nice. <laughs> well, you have your own um, head-to-head podcast series, and we're going to go up against each other in the charts. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me where this started, this this love of Weller. And I know it's the jam, but can you remember exactly when it was? Yeah, I, I can remember. It were, It all started with buying a copy of Smash Hits in oh. December 1978. Now, you probably don't remember that. No, but, I, remember, uh... I remember Smash Hits. <laughs> I, I, was, um, I was saying to Dennis Monday the other day, I used to have like as many copies as I can remember buying in our in our shed. <laughs> I don't know why <laughs> I kept you? them. I kept them for some reason. And then one day went out there, and the shed's roof had caved in, and the smash hits was destroyed. But, but oh, sma- no. smash hits was brilliant. <laughs> it came out. Uh, I think it, it started in nineteen late in nineteen seventy eight, and I bought it from the beginning. And I, it was in the December nineteen seventy eight issue. The jam were on the front cover. And there was a little competition going on inside, giving away 
uh, copies of the new album, All Mud Comes. Wow. I read about this in Smash Hits. I was really taken with it because all I knew at that point really of the jam was the bits I'd seen on top of the pops. It, it wasn't, there wasn't much going on, but I was very taken with the sort of sharp image and their energy. And when I read all this stuff in, in Smash Hits about All Mod Cons, I thought, this, I've got to buy this record. Um, and it was the next month, the beginning of 1979, that I bought it with my first paycheck. Oh. I remember it very clearly. <laughs> there was a, a little record shop just up the road from where I worked. And I popped in there in my lunch break and bought it. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> Before that, so you mentioned watching them on TV and Top of the Pops and I guess hearing them on the radio and stuff. So what was it about the music that connected with you and, and the performance? I mean, a mix of the two, I'm guessing, the visual and the music. But what yes. was it about it that really clicked? It, it was. I think it was because they were of a similar sort of generation to me. I loved the sharp sort of image of they'd got and their energy because it just screamed out every time you saw them was that raw energy. Didn't your mum say something when you first started watching them? <laughs> she did, yes. Well, it was the very first time I saw the jam on top of the pops they were playing in the city. And I was only 15 at the time. And I was sat there mesmerised, glued to the screen. And my mum came in the room, just stood behind the chair and watched it for a few minutes. She went, well, the singer looks very young. And that was it. <laughs> what about it? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't is, wrong, of course. <laughs> well, no, that's very true. That was yeah, I, I was only that. 18, I think, when he wrote In the City. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And at that point then, what, did you just go on to consume everything? So you get all mod cons, but then you're getting every music mag, every single, yes, every album. Yeah? that's right. Well, what I should say is when I listened to all mod cons for the first time, I picked up the sleeve with all the lyrics on it, and I, I was reading the lyrics as I was listening to the music, and that was, I think, where it all started for me, really, because... I was so taken with with Paul's lyrics. They were they spoke to me, you know. Uh, I mean, I did remember doing poetry in English O level at school, but this was poetry that actually spoke my language, and I was well taken with it. Definitely, that was the beauty of all mod cons. There were so many different styles in there. You know, it wasn't just like listening to one sound all the way through it. But I mean, for me, the lyrics. It was the lyrics to Down in the Tube Station at Midnight that really impressed me the most because the combination of the music and those lyrics it just painted such a picture you know fear and violence and it it was a dark picture but it was so powerful yeah it's a very visual song isn't it you could you yes. can't fail to kind of i mean to pinpoint accuracy you can't fail to see exactly what he's talking about in, in your no. head. and at that point then so you're going what well, you're and this is a time of melody maker and enemy did you have a yes. preference or did you just and smash hits but did you have a preference or just <laughs> well i think i moved away from smash hits then and it, it was anything that had the jam the word the jam or the picture of the band on the front cover i was just hungry for information and i i can't remember exactly i think it might have been the nme because i used to go through the classified ads in there i used to scour them for things i think that's where i came across an advert for the in the city songbook the jam in the city oh, songbook okay and i I sent off for it, sent my postal order and stamped addressed envelope off for it. <laughs> um, and when it came back, I mean, I've still got the book now. I've got it oh, here. Oh, go on, let's have a look. It's something I will never part with. I just, I flicked through the sheet music at the beginning, but it was the, the few pages at the end that really made an impact. Let me check one yes. second. Could you, can you play music? 
I, I can sort of sight read it. I'm, my dad okay. was a my dad was a very gifted musician, but right. the gene didn't quite pass to me. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not really looking at it for the notes and no, and how no. To I just play thought, this sounds interesting. I okay. want it, you know. <laughs> but as I say at the end, Paul had put this little piece in where he was outlining what his vision of you know the new wave movement would evolve into, and he introduced a young poet called David Waller, who was a a very early member of the jam uh, and a friend of Paul's. And it was those poems by Dave that struck another chord uh, when I read through them because they they painted pictures of a different nature. Wasn't there a chance that Dave was going to do a book as well? Is that right? That's absolutely right. Because I mean, because I was two years late buying this book. This came out in 1977, but Paul did put in there that if there was enough interest, it would maybe there would be a book of Dave's poetry to follow. And, of course, that came when he started his Riot Stories publications. Yeah, and we've talked a lot on this podcast about the music. We've talked even a little bit about Respond. We've talked about the Star Council, the solo years, but we've yet to touch on the poetry. We've yet to touch on the publishing side of things. So talk, tell me about Riot Stories. Exactly what was that then? It was something I read about how we, Paul had started this publishing company called Riot Stories, and the, the, the focus was very much on you know giving a platform to young unknown writers and young creative people. I think Dave's book, Notes from Hostile Street, I think that was the first publication, and I bought that straight away as well. (laughs) You won't be surprised to hear. (laughs) And, I mean, it was that book that started me writing poetry of my own. That that was I was heavily influenced by what I read in there. Um, Not so much now, but I was back then. Yeah, you know when I read some of the poems I wrote at that time, you can nearly see I I could have nearly copied them out of the book. <laughs> can you remember what else was coming out from that? Um, I want to say I was going to say record label, but I don't I don't know what the book equivalent of a record label is, but <laughs> <laughs> the publisher, I suppose. But what what yeah. else was coming out from writer stories? The next I really remember uh, was was when he Paul produced a fanzine called December Child. I mean, there were other publications as well, but I I didn't have any of those. Some of those are mentioned in the blog post because Steve Hinders had quite a collection. But December Child was Paul's fanzine, and that was very much the emphasis was on poetry and written pieces. Again, Paul himself actually contributed to them in his own poetry. You know, so that, that was the next I remember of them. And I do also remember reading in another fanzine I bought, which I can't remember the name of it. It was not Paul Weller's fanzine, it was a different one, that Paul had written a piece for this fanzine and he was encouraging other people to think about starting their own and doing it. Right. You know, it was all for it. There was one poem that appeared in one of the Riot Stories publications. I've got this on my, my blog post. And the lyrics of, of this poem actually inspired Paul to write um that's entertainment oh. it was one of, i think it was the, the the poet was called paul drew i think that's interesting yeah i heard that there were other bits with dave waller where he was taking inspiration from some of his poetry because obviously they were really close friends and they were informing or, or linking into some of his you, lyrics too yeah yeah you've just reminded me of something there that one of the poems at the back of the in the city songbook uh that david written that one of the verses was used as the li- part of the lyrics in um in the street today 
on This Is The Modern World. Right, okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so, yeah, so, I think he did work closely with him. So now tell me about your own poetry then. So this sparked something in you. You're loving the jam, <laughs> yes. you're loving the music, and we'll get back to the music in a sec. But what did you do? What was the output for you then? Well, it was purely a case of attempt having a go at writing my own poetry at that stage. And I, I wrote quite a few. I had a little folder that I, I kept them all in. That was really where the influence was. It inspired me to start writing my own poetry. Some of it wasn't very good, (laughs) but it did inspire me to start writing it myself. That was as far as it went at that point. But back to the music, did you get to see them live or was it mainly records? I did, but sadly, it took me until 1982 before I saw them live. One of my regrets, I would love to have seen them earlier on, but just one thing after another and it didn't actually happen. But I did get to see them twice that year and I'm so glad I did. Was one of those the last tour, presumably? Yes, Beat Surrender Tour. So what came first? When did you hear about the split and can you remember where you were and what the deal was and how you felt? Gutted. (laughs) Um, I, I think I read it. It was, I read that they'd split. Somebody told me, one of my friends told me that they were splitting up and I didn't believe it, but I did read it. I know when we went, when it was the Beat Surrender tour, there was this deep sadness in the audience. You couldn't actually put your finger on it, but I mean, it was the most amazing gig, but there was this deep feeling of sadness there. You could really sense it. And I bet as, as soon as the gig, that gig was over and you maybe weren't there, you knew that you weren't going to ever see them again. Almost heartbreak, right? Like a, like a, like a sense of love, like grief, <laughs> seven stages of grief or however many there are. Well, it was, I mean, one thing I've noticed, especially since I've started becoming very active on Twitter is that, that people have a real emotional attachment to the jam, myself included, but that, you know, it's is definitely that it was something they spoke to a whole generation of people mm. what is it that you think made that made them connect so much because you don't hear that about many bands do you you don't no i think the songs the lyrics of the songs i mean one song in particular that sticks in my mind is from setting suns with saturday's kids and that to me summed up how Paul spoke to people through his lyrics because you, you could identify with the people he was talking singing about you know, you could identify with the situations. Hmm. And I think that's what it was that made them so very special. I've just realised that 1982 is nearly 40 years ago now. Oh, don't, don't. <laughs> is, don't sorry, about, sorry about that, Jill. <laughs> Which is terrifying. But for a band to have that legacy where, and I know that Paul must get so frustrated with this, where people, you know, or oh, when are the jam going to get back together? Um, yeah, and, I'm and, sure. You know, and at gigs constantly kind of shouting out jam songs and things. Must have been frustrating. Certainly when he was in the Style Council, less so probably now. Well, I actually remember starting a petition with some, I got about a hundred signatures on it, well, which I was going to send to them, asking them if they'd reform. Ah. <laughs> That's how when was serious this? it was. This was last year. <laughs> no, no, this this was in 1983, just before I started oh. my fanzine. <laughs> now, tell me about your fanzine. Um, so, this is um, or was Kindred Spirit. So, you launched that. Was that 1983? Then you started that. Yes, what happened was the, the last little bit of the where the Paul Weller influence comes in was I think it was at the the last it was one of the gigs I went to in 1982. They were selling some of the Riot Stories publications, and I bought this this publication called The Individual Spoke, and that was a selection of writing again. Some of the writers people will have heard of, and others not. And I picked this up, and that was really what I when I read through it, I thought. You know, I could do something like this. 
And that was where it really started. It was just a shame that it came too late in the day for me to do like a live review of the jam. Mm, yeah, <laughs> I would have loved to have done that. <laughs> now you're on Twitter and um, you've got this amazing blog. And last November, um, you wrote an article which set the world on fire as far as Weller fans are concerned. Um, so this was you <laughs> This was you linking up with um, a chap called Steve Hinder. So how did this come about? Well, um, I, I mean, when I joined, I joined Twitter three years ago and, and it slowly picked up pace. And I, I decided to start contributing to the Weller Wednesday oh, yeah. um, posts <laughs> on Twitter. I'm sure you will have seen them. And what I, one week I put something on there about uh, the Jam's American tour in 1980. And Steve came forward and shared some of these photos from when he'd met the band and seen them live. And I was sort of blown away by this. And we sort of loosely made a connection then. But it wasn't until last September I joined in with somebody else's Weller Wednesday puss. And I puss, a con- my contribution was a picture of the December Child fanzine. I just put a picture of the front cover on and mentioned that Paul did used to have a fanzine. And Steve then joined in the conversation and said he'd had a feature published in one of Paul's December Child fanzines. <laughs> <laughs> Can I message you privately, please? <laughs> and that's where it started. That's how we sort of made a connection. Yeah. Love it. And the, and the stuff you've been doing in the Jam Scrapbook and stuff, we'll talk more about in a second because that's brilliant. But you've never met. You've never met because he's stateside, right? No. Okay, well, Scylla. I've never met him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like Scylla now. I'm going to let him into the Zoom room here. Um, and oh, hopefully, Steve, hopefully Steve can join us and you'll meet for the first time. Hello, Dan. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you. How are you? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? I'm well. Steve, meet Jill. Jill, meet Steve. Hello, Steve. <laughs> uh, um, unbelievable. I'm going to tell you right, Jill, this is... <laughs> good to meet you. Jill, good to meet you as well. This is a real honor. And for me. <laughs> uh, Dan and uh, Jill, I would not be here, Jill, right now unless you would have invited me to be a part of this really incredible jam Paul Weller adventure. I haven't talked about this. I mean, I've never written it in in many, many years, as you know, never. I've talked, chatted about it, chatted with friends about it, but never did I think I was going to write about it and collaborate with someone who is as passionate, if not more passionate. And so it's, it's Jill, it's been fantastic. And I'm thrilled that I'm actually chatting with you. I know, it's amazing. Well, let me say thank you to you, Steve, because without you, the blog post wouldn't have materialized. I think it's been a real team effort and a privilege that you were prepared to share your story. Well, you know, Jill, I knew from the start that I trusted you. And I thought, no, this gal is in tune. She's in touch. She's passionate. She believes. She understands. And I got you. I kind of got you immediately. And I just thought, no, I like Jill. This is where I'm going. I'm going to share my passion with Jill. And it blossomed into um, something that has improved my life in kind of a visceral way. You know, I think we always kind of feel because of the jam and Weller, all that great music that happened and continues to happen, that it, we carry it around with us yes. all our lives. And so it does keep us young. I am, as I said, thrilled that you're here and that Dan invited me to share. I'm at work right now. It's about um, 1230. I'm, I work in a, a, an ins- a musical instrument museum. It is a dream come true. And I'm where I should be. Are you in Hull? 
I'm at home, yes. You're at home right now. That's in my armchair, chatting yeah. to yeah. you. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, I'm welling up here, I have to say. So, I was um, going to say, this is amazing. Phil, you're in, you're in Hull. Um, Steve, you're stateside. So which state are you in? Okay, I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. Oh, and I'm about 350 miles east of Los Angeles. It is a beautiful day here. Um, and I'm just, I'm wearing my polka dot tie. I've had it for many, <laughs> many, probably 30 years. I thought, well, I got to dress up a little bit because it's how it is. It's just wonderful. So there's a bit of magic to it. And at, like you, Dan, we just, and we, we carry this around with us and we're not fooling around. This is, this is the real stuff. Oh, this is the most and important we mean thing. It. This is the most important it, it, thing. It, <laughs> it really is. You know, when I was 15 or 16, I'm, I generally feel the same way about rock and roll and soul and a wide variety of music. I feel the same way as I did then. It's never drained out of me. I attribute that to my passion for not only the Beatles and the Who and all that great stuff, but when the jam kicked in, the Clash, the Pistols and all that stuff, it still holds true. They spoke and, to us, didn't they? My God. And they, those lyrics still do. On my way to work today, I'm listening to uh, Life from a Window. And I'm like, oh, my God, brilliant. that still speaks to me yes. when you're young. It still, it still speaks to me. Yeah. And we're, you know, older and more, say, mature. But that visceral thrill never leaves. There's a solo, a guitar solo in When You're Young. And it's like a descending guitar solo that Paul just rips out. And to this day, and I've heard it hundreds of times, it gives me uh, chills. It it makes me feel like there are all these possibilities in life. It's just that yeah. beautiful immediacy that we have shared. And there's thousands of other jam fans out there who probably hear that same guitar, descending guitar riff and feel the same way. Feel the same and thing. It just yes. helps us to accelerate into the next hour of the day or the next the next week. And I hope to continue this until, you know, I can, I have no more breaths to breathe, you know? And so it never goes away. No, and, I agree uh, completely. You know, and from our communications, we're keeping that faith. As Paul Weller used to say, keep the faith. Yes. You know, <laughs> Absolutely. You know keep the flame burning, keep the faith. And yeah. we took that to heart. We took it to heart. You know, there's a song on his newest album on Sunset called Village. And it's just about kind of digging where you're at, where you're from. And yeah, you want to go, you know, visit other places and so on. But if you can find that peace at home or in your neighborhood with your friends, man, that's it's good stuff. And that's what I have found in my life. And I know you have with your family and so on. Yes. So it's a it's a gift. And we had to reach out for it. We had to go searching for these newspaper articles and these magazines and these singles and these free albums. They didn't just arrive. We had to seek them out. Our cool record shop or a neighborhood friend would say, hey, man, this new song by the Pistols, you got to go check it out. You'd have to find it. I'd get on a bus in Lima, Ohio, where I grew up, and I'd travel 125 miles just to pick up all mod cons for me and my friends. Yeah. And talk about a thrill to come back with five import copies. And it had been released in England. But you have five import copies. So I'm bringing them back to my friends, you know, Dave Andre and Jimmy Fry and Sherry and all my friends. And they're like, oh, my God, let's have a party. And we'd <laughs> listen. We'd be ecstatic, with, especially Ahmad Khan's that first couple of minutes of, of that album. And then to be someone. <clears throat> we just took off our lives. We were so pleased to be alive. Weller spoke to me as he spoke to you and Dan and millions. 
And what a yes. gift. Just to be able to have that emotional connection with people. And we've just been talking about this legacy over nearly 40 years since the jam split up. And we'll, we'll get into that. This kicked off for you in the same similar way to how it kicks off with Jill, which was Smash Hits. But yours was Melody Maker. Was that right? Yeah, mine was Melody Maker. And I'd been reading Melody Maker and NME. And I'd go to my local record shop. And it was always a month behind. You know, we'd get it. To, an article was written in, in April uh and I'd get it a month later. I couldn't wait. I'd get to the record shop. So I picked up the Melody Maker from, I think it was April of 77, one of the weeks. I took that home, and I'm, I'm lying in bed, and I'm reading a, a, this article about the jam written by Brian Harrigan. And I think Brian Harrigan's still out there somewhere. I'm not sure, but I, I know he's out there. But I thought, my God, they're talking about soul music. They're talking about, uh, you know, Tamla Motown, The Who, and they're dressed to the nines. They're scooters. I'm, and I was kind of an Anglophile growing up just because of the Beatles, the Kinks, the Stones, and so on. But the Beatles were the, the big impetus. But knowing that Weller loved the Beatles. And then Bruce and Rick, they're talking, you know, I'm like, who are these guys? They're my <laughs> cup of tea. They are my musical sibling soulmates. And it was instantaneous. I had not heard them. So I'm reading this article. I'm going, my God, this is the band for me. And I kept reading. I'm like, okay, what's going on here? I love these guys already. So I think that same day, I went over to the record shop and I found in the city going through, I'm like, oh, I didn't expect it to be there. It was a great record shop, but I thought, now this is too early for this thing to be out here. And I remember having a visceral thrill, a shock. There, there it is. And so I pick it up. And there's, you know, Paul in the back with his kind of Pete Townsend leaping and so on. So if everybody's looking cool and these tiles, like bathroom tiles or something, it just looked cool. And I remember, I think it was the same. It was their logo. The like graffiti spray of the logo. Yeah. Yeah. Th- uh, that, that's the first one. Yeah, Steve's th- holding up a badge with the logo. Hey! <laughs> I, I got, this was my first jam, a badge I got in London. And um that i still have and i treasure it and i still have a bunch more but so i took it home and i was at my apartment and my brother was there he was 13 at the time and i put in in, in the city comes on and then sounds in the street and then uh bricks and mortar down I'm like, what the heck is going on here and i had listened to the clash and the pistols a little bit but they zeroed in on my love of fast R&B and Dr. Feelgood had prepped me in some fashion. Wilco and Lee and Big Figure and had prepped me a little bit for the jam because the faster it was, the more I liked it. But what I liked about it is that the songs were compact, tight, and I thought, these guys know where it's at. Even though you have the Who influences on, I never really picked up on on that album that much. Away from the numbers, absolutely brilliant. Those Beach Boy harmonies come in. And I think my brother and I are going, whoa, this is coming down at us. This is really because I love the Beach Boys. When I hear who's doing harmonies like they're kind of real rough and gruff harmonies because you have that kind of I think it was Chris Perry production kind of thin. But to my ears, it just was so exciting. And every single oh, my God, those picture sleeves were so brilliant and, and are still brilliant. But that initial in the city. And then I couldn't wait for uh, this is the modern world. A lot of people didn't like it as much. I loved it equally. Standards, uh, London traffic in the street today, the cover with, oh my God, when we, my buddy and I, we were walking around my hometown in 77, 78 with electrical tape on our sweaters, you know, arrows <laughs> and so on. And people are looking at us like, cause you know, we're kind of from the sticks yeah. and a lot of bands like <laughs> journey and are you Speedwagon, all these American bands were, were huge. They looked at us like, who are you f- 
freaky. We were like, hey, this is who we are. Oh my God, the black and white jam shoes. I got I got fired. I think it was laid off from a, from a marketing job because he's, uh, the fellow, my manager said, you're wearing these gangster shoes. Nobody's wearing these kind of shoes. Wear presentable loafers or wingtips. But I, I'd say, no, I'm wearing my black and white shoes to work. So he says, we're going to have to let you go. Uh, probably for other reasons as well. They thought, <laughs> no, this guy's an outsider. He's not going to be a team player here. I was living my life as I wanted that whole jam Weller clash, be an individual, you know, have friends and so on, but stay away from the numbers for the most part. Try to, at least we all get caught up in the numbers, of course. But if we can, if I can put my head on the pillow at night saying, yeah, I'm still pursuing that passion or it pursues me, then I'm, I'm good. Well, I'm going to fast forward to February 1978. So this is um, when you first see the jam live. This is their second US tour. And actually, I hadn't realized they toured the US as many times as they did. And we'll touch on the, t- the various kind of times that you saw them. But this is a really small audience. I think there's about 50 people at this gig. But yeah, you that was it. You get there really early. And, and tell me about the story of meeting Paul. Sorry, sorry, Jill, but Steve has met Paul. I don't know if he's mentioned it. <laughs> I think he oh, well, yep. <laughs> my girlfriend and I uh, saw Paul and Jill outside of the club. And I thought, oh, my God, there's Paul Weller. He, but he's focused on Jill, his girlfriend. So didn't say anything. But we, I think we'd gone in earlier and met John, who was as nice as can be, as I mentioned in the blog, his silver hair was just swept at back so beautifully and he was so kind. And so we met Bruce and Rick and they were very friendly. They were a little bit uh, on edge because they had a show coming up. Then Paul, I think Paul came in with Jill and I was still pretty nervous. I'm 21. I'm like, he's here. There's Weller. Here's the band. I could not believe I was actually seeing these guys. So I approached Paul and Jill and introduced myself. And Paul was very open, very friendly. I think he might have been like 19 at the time, maybe 19. But we talked about a little bit about the Beatles, the Who, about what the jam were going to be, what other areas in the United States they were going to visit. But they were very pleased that I was there with my girlfriend. So they did a sound check. And then that night, you know, they came on as $3.00 to see them. And I was right down front. And this is the first picture I ever took of wow. Paul. Oh. He and looks, that's like, he's looks like he's just come out of school, man. Then Tom's like age. Yes, yeah, look, look at him there. You know, it's just unbelievable. So I believe that was the first picture because that was the closest I got because even at the 50, there were a number of people that did kind of start crowding around down front, but they were pinballing against each other. Bruce and Paul, would hit their backs together, then spring out. They had the Union Jacks on their amps and their Vox amps. They were very, very loud. And it was one of the most exciting moments of my life. I could not believe how much racket three guys could make. (laughs) And I mean, I've seen the Who back in the 70s. The Who were fantastic, but I saw them in a big arena. But to see the jam up close, like 10 feet away, and to know that they had played hundreds of gigs in and around London, woking and just building up to all those pubs and so on. And John taking them everywhere. Oh my God, they were on fire. They were a tremendous band. And we chatted with them, I think afterwards, and just, we'll see you again. Life-changing. And the fans that were there, they loved them. I know that the Jam were able to do very well in the larger cities, Chicago, Detroit, New York City, San Francisco, some of the smaller venues, uh, not so much. 
But they stayed true to themselves and I admire them. I didn't want them to break up, but perhaps that was the best thing. You know, they, it's a beautiful five years, you know, 77 to 82, but I know they had years before that. What a great compact period of time. And Weller had always said that about the small faces. Bang, you're in, do it and get out. And you've got your legacy and you've got, you're going to have kids saying they didn't sell out. The following year, you go to another gig. He comes back to the US, comes to Ohio. You're having a drink afterwards and Paul waves you over. And at this point, you, I want to say make friends because it kind of is like you're, you become like pen pal buddies. How does this happen? We, we did become pen pals. Jill was there. I got the address from Jill and I asked Paul, how about if I write you? And he says, sure, that sounds really good. And I have, there's my very, I mean, I've got a whole, all my letters from Paul. This is amazing. So you're, so you're writing to Paul and obviously his home address. This isn't just Paul Weller, England, and then it arrives in. So Joey's girlfriend's written it out on a napkin or something. Is that right? She has it on a napkin, which I still have. It's a drink, (laughs) a drink napkin. And so Paul and I start writing and I would just lay my feelings on the line. What I liked about uh, a lot of music, what I didn't like about some American music or wide variety politics touched upon a number of different things, books, magazines. Uh, I know, I had talked to him about James Jamerson, who was the great session player in those Motown songs. I sent him a book. Uh, I sent him a book about James Jamerson. So these letters that I got from Paul were very personal. There was humor. There was decency, and there was kindness. When he wrote that letter, he was focused on writing that letter. He appreciated that I wrote him, and I appreciated that he wrote back. And that went on probably until like 1982. I think the last time I talked to Paul was maybe the late 90s. And I saw him out in L.A., an incredibly great show. But it, it the correspondence lasted until the stock into the style council. But I treasure these letters. It's a moment in time. Here he is between the ages of me, 20 and 25. He's articulate about his passion and he's curious about what I think about certain songs and so on and so forth. I was just, I'm still knocked out. It almost feels like a dream that we communicated. And it, as everyone, you know, moves on separate ways and so on, I lost contact with him over, over the years in the late 90s. And we said, hello, there was, you know, all that stuff had been uh, communicated. And that's a period where you feel that he's in a bit of a pressure cooker, right? At that time, it's like um, this spokesman for a generation type thing and pressure to kind of keep releasing singles, keep releasing albums back on tour again. Must have been relentless. So I wonder, I mean, those letters to me feel like, and having seen some of the stuff and heard what you've just been saying, it feels like a bit of a release to be able to just get some stuff off his chest or just, or just have a nice conversation outside of the day-to-day of, of writing, recording, writing, recording. I think so. As you said, the pressure cooker and he certainly talked about that in the latter part. He's like, oh my God, I've now I've got to come up with another batch of songs. Who knows what was going on in his mind, but perhaps, and he wrote me and he wrote other fans, and I know he wrote other fans, that there was a release there. Like, mm-hmm. okay, I can kind of be myself and talk about other things outside of the jam. It, it's still thrilling to read these. There is a, a truth and an honesty I know that um, I had a couple of them printed on Jill's blog. I felt that was okay. There are some personal things I'm not going to, I'm not going to wouldn't print. That would be 
he, I would see, be quite ticked off by that, you know. Yeah. But I think yeah. what I've the stuff you've shared is okay to share, shared and published yeah. and so on yeah. is. Uh, yeah. I don't think he'd mind that, but yeah. uh, I'm I'm not going to go further than that. Family stuff and so on. One of the, and I had mentioned this in the blog. One of the great things that ever happened to me was um, I had fallen asleep in Woking across. I had a couple of beers. Well, no, hold on. Asleep. We we have to get on to Mrs. Milton. <laughs> been, oh, oh, my oh God. yes, I've yes. Been waiting, I've been waiting to get on to Mrs. Milton. So this is September. 1979 you traveled you traveled back to the uk actually you've been to the uk before and you decide to go to woking which is paul's hometown in surrey so do you make your way to stanley road is that where you're heading no you know this i i knew that he had uh they had moved from stanley road i think i had went down stanley road but he lived on balmoral drive right and that's where his folks his mom and dad lived and so like I did with the Kinks and the Beatles, I went to I went to their neighborhoods. I wanted to see the source. I wanted to see what did, what did they see when they walked out of their homes. I nodded off in that boulevard, and then <laughs> an elderly woman, eighty years old, I get a tap on the shoulder because I'm wearing my white and black pointed jam shoes, and she said, uh, "Paul's." mother was across the street. His grandmother said, well, we've been to the store. We've done the supermarket. We're going to make some sandwiches. Would you like to come in? And I said, yes. I mean, she woke me up out of a real sleep, kind of a, not a, after two beers and I'm tired anyway, traveling. So I'm like, well, it was such a shock because I would have, if she wouldn't have stopped by, I would have just gotten up and walked maybe to go buy Bruce's house. Yeah. You've done done working. You've done working. It's time to move on. So, so Paul's nan is Mrs. Milton, right? Yes. (laughs) Does she have a first name or we just don't know? (laughs) No, she would sign it Nan. Oh. And then Paul had said in a letter, he goes, she would refer to me as Arizona because that's where I was living. He goes, you know, my nan refers to you as Arizona, but I'm invited in and Nikki Weller, Ann Weller, Steve Carver, great friends of the family, Pete Carver, all come over, neighbors come over. And we're sitting out in the back garden and Nikki's like, uh, why do you, why would you come all the way here to see my brother? And I said, well, I, uh, because it's Paul Weller. That's why I'm coming over here. You know, <laughs> I, I just wanted to get a flavor for the neighborhood. I didn't expect to come in, but, you know, but they were so genuinely warm to me and the neighbors were nice. Everybody made me feel at home. John Weller came home about six o'clock and um, I had known, seen John in, in Ohio. He was so nice to me and we were drinking scotch. We sat around listening to music. It was the day he brought home the acetate to turning Japanese that was going to be released on Polydor. Right. So all of a sudden he puts that on the record player. The Vapors, right? Is that right? It was the Vapor yeah. song. So he had the acetate he brought down from Polydor and he just put it on the little record player. It was not really a stereo, I don't think. It was just a record player. And this thing comes blasting out. I'm like, wow, that's a good song. You know, it's a really good song. So he wanted to kind of get, yeah, I like that. So it did become the big hit, but it might have been the first time, you know, it hadn't been played very often, I don't think, and you know, definitely not on radio at the time. As we were sitting around the Weller home, uh, John said, hey, uh, I'm going to play something for you out in the car. So we go out to this little car. You know, I don't know if it was a Mercedes, but they had you know, a nice little car. In the cassette deck, he puts in a cassette of Paul. And it had to be when he was about 14. And as I'd said in the blog, I recall it electric guitar, maybe acoustic, but I think it was electric. And Paul was singing these really melodic kind of Jerry the Pacemaker tunes style tunes, a little beatly, a little bit of Henny, but Jerry and the Pacemakers, or that's what I thought at the time, because I wrote that down. I said, it's kind of like Jerry and the Pacemakers, but really pretty and melancholy at the same time. So we're sitting there and John is playing these songs and we're not talking. 
But I'm going, this is unbelievable. John was so nice to me. And I was so proud that I was like, oh my God, I'm, I've done something right here. You know, I'm really living my passion here. And I'm sitting with John Weller and he is so proud of his son. My God. So we had a bite to eat. Neighbors were over there. And then I told Ann and John that I was going to go back up to London because I had a little hotel there. They said, no, no, we can't do that. Stay here. John gets on the phone to Paul and says that I'm there. And Paul invites me up to Townhouse Studios for uh, as a recording setting sons. And I, I'm like, are you kidding? John, are you kidding me? Can you be there by 11 o'clock? I said, yeah, I'll get up early. So they gave me a nice place to sleep. And I had breakfast the next morning. John had already gone back up to London. So Nikki, and I think it was Pete Carver, walked me down the train station. Then I headed up to London. I went straight into uh, Shepherd's Bush up to London. I'm thinking, I just heard these little cassette songs by Paul Wellard. What a dream. And it made me so happy. I was very excited when I went to townhouse that day and Paul was very welcoming. Bruce and Rick were very welcoming, went down and took some photos of the guitars. And I think I picked up uh, one of Paul's Rothman guitar or uh, cigarette packs, which I still have. Oh boy. <laughs> and a um, rotor sound string, a pack. Cause he always on his first string, he's got a 10 gauge. Okay. That's cool. And from then on, I used to play to use 10 gauge on my first strings as well. It's not uncommon, but to have that rotor sound string, uh, pack. And then uh, I know Tony Fletcher was there from the jamming magazine, but I left going, what in the world has just happened? I was walking on air and then being able to walk around Shepherd's Bush and hit a couple of pubs and just bask in that feeling. It was heaven. What you have just described it to me is the final episode of this podcast. Uh, 48 hours is the final episode of this podcast, but with me in that position <laughs> now at Blackburn. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Um, and funny you say that because one of the first titles for this podcast, I was kind of thinking could be like um, the adventures from townhouse to Blackburn and tell the story through that or from Stanley Road to Blackburn was the other one. But um, that's incredible. And wasn't one of the songs you heard them recording um, was it Burning Sky? Was that right? It was Burning Sky that day. And uh, they would be down the studio recording and then they'd come back. They came back in for a playback and then they'd fiddle around and Vic Coppersmith Heaven was there and he'd be working the, the console and then they'd be maybe some overdubs and so on and so forth. But I felt like, okay, they're carving this thing together. And that album, oh my God, Thick as Thieves, I can play that thing and going, oh my God, what a song. It holds up. It's so personal. It's it's so moving to this day. It's one of my all-time favorite songs by any band. The incredible thing here is that that album came out two months later. So I think this is September yeah. 1979. The album's out in November. <laughs> so that, I mean, they're still recording at that point. And then suddenly, yeah, they, you, they, yeah, they really they, And it wasn't till, uh, you know, going back to being at the, at the Weller home there that night, you know, just chatting with Paul's grandmother. And I did mention that she was wearing an all mod cons button that day. It's not like, you know, she put it on for me. No, she was wearing an all mod cons button. I got a terrific picture of her. And I had sent that to Jill. I'm not, you know, wouldn't have that published. And I'm like, are you kidding me? But she was so friendly to me and was very friendly. Nikki, John, so welcoming. And I think that is part of that jam legacy of the family being so friendly and outgoing to the fans. And to this day, I'm sure, I know John's been gone for quite some time, but whenever I did see John afterward, he was so very friendly to me and he was very respectful to the fans. But then, then later on, um, I communicated with uh, Paul and Jill about maybe coming, going over for the sound effects tour. I thought, well, I might do that. I'll make some money, paint some houses and I'll do this. And then I got a note from Ann and her mother 
Nan Milton Mrs. Say, hey, Mrs. Can, Mrs. Millicent's back again. At, yeah. <laughs> you can stay at my place in Guildford. So I am 20, 22 at the time. I said, okay. Not thinking that. <laughs> it's like, okay, why not? What a, an honor. She was very sincere about that. Wow. The letters I have from his grandmother are wonderful. And she's talking about the tea she's having for, you know, dinner and just everyday things in her Guildford neighborhood. And maybe it was, I was a pen pal with yeah. her. And she knew how much I loved the jam and how much I respected Paul. And uh, as I mentioned to Jill, uh, All Around the World was her favorite song. And uh, she would always, uh, she sang it a few times, just like the chorus, All Around the World. I'm going, you, you. I'm like, oh, my God, this is fantastic. It's not a well. Yeah. You know, at 80, she was elderly, but she was she was young. She was a young 80-year-old woman, and uh, she loved the jam. So you come over three weeks, and Nana's house is a bit of a base for you, but you basically toured, you went on tour with the jam, in a sense, with the the jam army, and and saw gigs around, what was it, Newcastle, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Leeds, Cardiff, Birmingham, Brighton, Manchester, probably more. So what did you make of touring this this fabulous, strange country of ours, and travelling with other jam fans? I have to say, these guys, Roger Pilling, who was a friend of his schoolboy, friend was so kind, so nice, hysterical. I mean, wicked sense of humor. And two brothers who I just think the world of Joe Malone and his brother, Frank, Shepherd's Bush guys. And I've stayed at their place in Shepherd's Bush. And I haven't seen them for, you know, probably 15 years now. And a fellow named Chris Jamison, who I saw in the queue at, at uh, Manchester Apollo. And I only saw Chris for like maybe two or three days, but he and I are in contact again after so many years. And Paul Bradley from London and a wide variety of passionate people who are a bit younger than me, and a little bit older than me, dozens. So You might have a conversation in a crowd with these jam fans and never see them again, but it was a core enthusiasm. And then what I loved about it, you could talk about a wide variety of things, but it came back to the songs, the songwriting, the excitement of being at a show, the visceral thrills that not only we'd experience in the moment chatting, but we'd see the show and then we'd all kind of bounce off into our own worlds and take that energy with us. I am so pleased that I took that route of taking the train with the jam fans and going to the next stop and then finding a place to stay for the night. I'll see you at the Newcastle Town Hall and then I'd meet them down there and then we'd have some drinks later and I'd go back to where I was staying and I'd say, I'll meet you at the train station at this hour, you know, the next day and then we're off to the next city. It was uh, magic. It wasn't work. It was like you have to slog through the day and you have to get a place to stay. And there are times, oh, my God, that we all stayed in kind of the same room (laughs) and five of us on the floor. And uh, I sent Chris a picture. I think Jill has it as well. Uh, Chris Jamison, I think the young woman named Anne from Cleveland, uh, England. The bed covers, the wallpaper, nothing matched. And it was the most hideous, glorious room. And Chris had said recently, he goes, I'm still trying to get that night out of my mind, seeing all those clashing colors and and patterns. (laughs) The camaraderie is essential. And I didn't expect as much camaraderie, but I was welcomed as a yank, you know, for a while there, Kenny Wheeler, who was Paul's minder and just the jam, main jam guy. I had kind of what they would call like an echo in the bunnyman long coat. It was like an army coat. And I had glasses at the time. And 
And for some reason, uh, I'd switch him from a coat to another jacket and I wouldn't wear my glasses. And so Kenny started calling me Clark Kent. <laughs> so there's Clark, there's Clark, there's Clark Kent, hey, Clark Kent, Clark Kent. And so that was kind of the name after a while. There's Clark, you know, it's like, um, hey, you, you can't, you don't pick your own nickname. <laughs> but when Roger Pilling and Joe Malone would write me, it would always be Clark Kent after a while. You know, it's like, that was cool. They let us into the sound checks. Generally, they let us into sound checks. And after the shows, we'd all... Maybe go back to the jam where the jam was staying, have a few drinks, then we go on our way. And Paul would just chat with anybody who wanted, who was passionate. And he was patient. And we'd all just drink. And John would be there and Kenny would be there and Bruce and Rick. And just, we ch I'd chat with Bruce for a while about what music he liked or what music Rick liked. And so um, then you'd go into the next day. It's like, so, okay, we're going to do it all over again. <laughs> and, but some of those gigs were, were so brilliant. The two shows at the Newcastle Town Hall, just stunning. And I know there's tapes out there, which I had at one of their tapes. And I think there's some live broadcast of that show. But the gig that kind of, in some ways, scared me was I was at the Glasgow Apollo and I was up in the, um, the rafters. This is on and the balcony, the, isn't it? That's the balcony like, yeah. was shaking. These, I'd never seen fans this manic. They were explosive. Down front, you look down and there's heaving at the stage. Of course, upstairs in the balcony, it is swaying. It is, And I'm at the side going, I shouldn't be here. <laughs> so after a little while, I left that balcony and I tried to worm my way down. I got someplace. Some of those shows, I didn't want to be down front. I wanted to get another perspective, which is fun as well. Getting a perspective of, the, of fans in the back. I'm guessing there was a big difference between the UK and the US tours. The size, I, I think so. Uh, but the audience, say, when I saw the jam at March 5th in Detroit of 1980. The Clash had played there five days earlier. That was a great, great gig. <laughs> the jam show was better. The fans there, uh, there was about 800. They were crushed down front. I mean, it was very similar. I think this was before I went on that sound effects tour, but they were very similar. Just passionate jam fans, passionate punk uh, music fans, passionate about life. So you had a hardcore fan sound front. Then you had a lot of people who didn't have a clue who the jam were and they were, but they were curious. But I don't think there was that much of a, a difference in the passions. I mean, I really, really dug a lot, dig a lot of the U.S. fans because they are as passionate as the U.K. fans. And um, so that was kind of nice to see, you know, as U.S. fans, we could kind of rise to that. We got it. A lot of Americans didn't get that jam sound, you know, too British, this or too English, whatever it was. It appealed to me and it appealed to my friends and thousands of others. So they could sell out in LA, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, but some of the other places they just wouldn't visit. They did come to Phoenix in 1977 and they played LA in 77, I think San Francisco. So they were testing the waters and man alive, did they grow quickly. This is the modern world to all mod cons. Wow. Jill and I were talking earlier about that day when you hear that the band is splitting. It was obviously an emotional time for Jill. And, you know, that stays with you, that feeling. And, and can you remember that when you first heard that the jam were going to be no more? I was in San Francisco at the time and it was 82. I had been in a record shop and I'd walked out of the record shop. And then a, a gal came out, I think a little bit younger than me. And she goes, hey, did you just hear that the jam broke up? I said, no way. She goes, the jam are breaking up. I said, the jam are breaking up or the jam broke up? And she goes, well, I think they're still together, but they're breaking up. She goes, there might be shows, there might not be, but she goes, they're breaking up. I said, the jam are breaking up? No, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I don't know if it was maybe because that pressure cooker you were talking about earlier, Weller's thinking, I got to get out of this. Got to have some freedom here. But I was not happy. 
You know, I remember saying to my friends, my God, they, what the heck? They got out more music in them. What are we going to do without the jam? You know, so I was just certainly disappointed. But then, you know, as time goes on, it's like, okay, all right, that's the way it's going to be, you know. And uh, even with the letters, once the jam had broken up and he was in the style council, a couple of the letters were still as passionate. I think he was a little bit happy, more happy-go-lucky in those letters, a little bit calmer in some respects, like, oh, good. We got another pressure cooker coming up. We got to do this and that, but I'm not in over my head, perhaps, you know, maybe just felt emotionally in over his head. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure he's talked about it with people over the years and looking back, pretty cool move. Brave. Yeah. And back to what we were kind of saying at the beginning, now that 40 or soon to be since they split up 40 year legacy of you left it where you were, where it was you five years of that, those singles, those albums, those live gigs yeah. and those memories. And that compacted it in your head and in Jill's head of they were still going now, maybe those memories wouldn't be the same. You wouldn't feel that way. You know, I, I think you're spot on. Yes, I they, do. They just wouldn't. You say, well, okay. Um, you know, in that first article, maybe the first second article I read about the jam, Weller was saying, well, this is just what happens. You know, we was talking about the Rolling Stones. Like, why are they still together? You know, this is like maybe 14 years after they were got together. He goes, well, I guess that's inevitable. And this was in maybe the first or second piece I read. I thought, well, okay, that's what's going to happen. We all get older and I and move on. And I think he knew that from the get go. It wasn't going. It was going to last as long as it should last. And I know his dad wasn't happy. The band wasn't happy. Fans not happy. But man, in his heart, I respect that fellow for doing that. I think he knew that's what happens. Your bands just move on. Why didn't they break up? You know, why didn't why they go on so long? So he had a kind of a vision of that. I think. And kudos to Paul for doing that. It's given him a chance to re- create really, really great music, some terrific style council music, great stuff on his own. I mean, I've got on the way to work today, six songs from, you know, the past 15 years that I've been listening to. They're dynamite songs. Out of the Sinking is one of my favorites. We've not mentioned that song on this podcast yet, but man, that is that's so good. What that a song. So, oh, yeah. Driving to Work Yesterday, and this is an album I've been playing quite a bit because the weather has been really cold or cold for us. Um, <laughs> overcast, some rain, some snow is the soundtrack from the film Jawbone, which he did the score for. And there is a 15, 16, 17 minute piece at the front. And it is just very experimental, very dark around the edges. And then the song comes right after that, the ballad of Jimmy McCabe. Oh, it's one of my favorite all-time Paul Weller songs. He did it 2016. You know, we're all still kind of listening in our, you know, we cherry pick certain songs. That's one of my top favorites. Now, the ballad of Jimmy McCabe is so heartfelt. I'm like, man, that speaks to me. Like this song Village, that really speaks to me from his new album. And there's one of my favorite songs, and I think it's from Illumination called Leafy Mysteries, Mm -hmm. which there's a video of, and it shows Paul, the band, Steve White's in the band at the time, and you see Kenny Wheeler, you see John Weller, and they're on the road. I play that song. I watch that video once every month just to get like a kick. I love that song. I love the video. Paul's hair is really cool, short, but kind of silvery. John is looking dynamite. I thought, oh my God, John Weller looks better, gets better and better looking as he gets older. But then there's Peacock's suit, which still blows my mind from the floorboards up. Fast car, slow traffic is another one he and Bruce collaborated on. I'm like, wow, that's Bruce and Paul right there. Okay, if I yeah. if that's the closest the jammer ever going to get back together, hey, the jammer never going to get back together, and that is so cool by me. I hope they don't because it's not what it's not meant to be, and they shouldn't do it. In my opinion, they should never do it. I'd like to see them together, just being interviewed, saying hello to each other. But fast car, slow traffic, whew, man, that's that's a jam song right there. But Paul just keeps plugging away, and I'm excited about 
what he's doing next. Because if he's moving forward, I'm moving forward. But as Paul continues, man, I'm along for the ride. I know that the Jam Scrapbook Volume 2 is on its way, Jill. Is that right? So you, you're collaborating I'm again? I'm just about to make start on it. Yes, we're, we've got quite a few bits together for that already, haven't we, Steve? Yes, we do. I'm going to send... I'm going to take some more photographs of some of my memorabilia. And if you can use it, Jill, great. If not, I understand. But you, just for your own personal uh, reasons as well, I just want to share it with you. And so I'm just going to go through a few more bits and pieces. But I'm thrilled by the quality of your writing. Oh, thank you. The way you've told and weave this story together, our stories. And then we've had others in the scrapbook contribute. And that's a kick for me as well, going... Wow, look at that story, okay? And you delve into that. So it is a very communal, the more the merrier. Yeah, the scrapbook is is a nostalgia trip, isn't it? Whereas I think our blog post we did together was something rather special. It was our stories, you know. It was our stories. And the way they coincided, equal amounts of passion, you can just kind of mix mix those together. And it makes, I've had friends who really, really enjoyed uh, reading what I wrote. And then really enjoy what you wrote, knowing that you'd been influenced to, to write poetry yes. and all of the riot stories in, info is fantastic. Some of that I had no clue, you know, I'm like, oh, man. And I, I would never have written, started my poetry blog now if it hadn't been for Paul Weller. That's where it all started. Wow. Now, do you go out to the seaside every day? <laughs> there is a little place near me you've seen on Twitter. <laughs> I love it. I, I love it, Jill. I've never been to Hall. I know that uh, Mick Ronson is from Hall. Yes, and, indeed. And um, hopefully in the year 2022, I haven't been back to London or to England uh, since 2005, but hopefully in 2022, I can carve out 10 days, go to London, and, and I can come up and have a beer or a, just a cup of tea with you and your well, family. Well, I'll be offended if you don't. <laughs> you know what? I would, Jill, I would be on that train heading up. That is exciting, and it's a goal. That would be wonderful. I don't know what the two of you will find to talk about, I have to be honest. <laughs> you know what, Jill? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to write a few things down. There's not much in common. I can't work out what you're going to chat about. I can see another not... blog post coming already. <laughs> yeah, that would be lovely. That would be lovely. Hey, look, we've got to wrap this up. This has been so lovely. Okay. Um, I've got a couple of final questions for each of you. So, Jill, you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. Which one is it? It can be the Jam, the Style Council, or Solo. Steve, same question to you. So Jill's got a bit of thinking time. Same question to Uh-oh. you. There is okay. one song for the rest of your life. Which one is it going to be? And this is a moment in time. This is right now. This might change tomorrow. It's quite likely. It okay. Be, yeah, moment in time. All right. Yeah, go on. Off you go. Okay, Jill. I'm having to think here. This is how it changes from day to day. Well, I think it would have to be Saturday's Kids. Oh, my God. Because right on. That is where, you know, that was when I started writing seriously and led into my fanzine. So, yes, it would be Saturday's Kids because it was such an influence. One of my favorites. It's just the way it clangs in and there you go. But I'm, I, I, I'll have to say Thick as Thieves. It's just so meaningful to me. The, the passion behind it. The, there's this angst of these people who are friends and they're splitting off because you know, they're getting older and their ideals change and so on. Like when I listen to that, it's a matter of trying to make sure, like reminding myself, okay, man, stay true to yourself. Things are going to change, but keep your ethical compass. Keep that going in a positive direction. The passion in Paul's voice and the music just 
continues to knock me out. It always gives me a chill. So the aim of this podcast is for that very special, now it's 48 hours actually. So it's 48 hours with the Weller family and then a day in Black Barn if I'm mirroring your success. But what one question should I ask Paul? Is there something that I should cover? Jill, why don't you kick us off? What would you, what have you always wanted to ask Mr. Weller? Well, now then you've put me on the spot here. It's going to be um, maybe a, a question about his favorite haircut. I know he'd try all these Steve Mary haircuts over the years and so on and so forth, but his absolute favorite that's cut a gra- was, was that's a great Steve question. <laughs> I mean, Mary to me is always, and he got longer. I always thought, oh, it looks like Paul's kind of mimicking Steve with humble pie here. But I think what his absolute favorite haircut and also his favorite beetle haircut and if Paul, John Paul George Ringo, at what time in their career? Did he like John with the long hair? Do you like John with the real short hair? But I know he's such a Beatle fan. Yeah. Like, what's your favorite Beatle haircut? If you could wear it, what would you wear, Paul? I was thinking the other day, actually, I don't know why this popped into my head, but in the UK here right now, we're in um, lockdown. So hairdressers are closed. And I was thinking... How does that work in with with Paul Weller? Because that's a, that's a that's a big deal. The haircut, and he's not cutting that himself. His kids are not doing that for him. So how does that work? He's moved on from that like that mod. Now it's behind his ears, and it's silvery, and it's parted in the middle. I'm like, man, he's he's a modernist. I really dig it. You know, and he wears these really cool looking glasses. I thought this guy is timeless. I don't know how he does it. Maybe he get, brings somebody in. His dad had the best head of hair. I don't. I think I've ever seen on any man in my life. <laughs> He was so cool. I don't think I've yet shared my picture of me with a Weller cut on Twitter. Oh, do you so have do you have a that, Weller cut? I did have at one point. I had um, so you can't see, but I've got um, I've curly gingery hair. It's going yeah. a bit grey now, but um, but yeah, back in the day, I spent four hours getting it chemically straightened for a um, for a Paul Weller haircut. <laughs> it was not my finest look, I'll be honest. But... <laughs> and, and what what year was that? That was 2000, what was that, 2009, 2010, maybe? Yeah, something like that. Wow. And how long did you keep that? Uh, I had three separate sessions, so I reckon I kept it for about nine months, and then it was becoming quite expensive, to say the least, and and, and looked like a Lego man, quite honestly. (laughs) And the curls just started coming back naturally again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're having to pay a fortune to get it chemically straightened. But the other thing with it was, actually, I'll tell you what it was, it was 2010. And I went to five nights at the Royal Albert Hall in a row, which I've mentioned on the podcast before. That was around that time. And But I'm front row with, no disrespect, because these are going to be fans of the podcast and I love you all, but there were a lot of us with that same haircut at that time in the front (laughs) row. (laughs) Sure. And I think at the time Um, as well, then Paul changed it and we all went, oh, bloody hell. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Now what are we doing? Yeah, now what? It's time to move on. Always always chasing that. No, this has been very special. This has been very special. Joel, you've had enough thinking time. Have you got a question for Paul Weller now? I have, yeah. Of all the lyrics he's written, which is his personal favourite, that would be what I would ask him. Of all, all, right across the whole of his career. Oh, yeah. Good question. Killer question. Killer that question. Is <laughs> a t- that'd be a tough one. That's an excellent question, Jill. Hey, this has been an absolute blast, Steve, Jill. It's been lovely to unite you properly together so you can meet. Yes. And, and what a lovely way to spend a, a, what, an hour and a half, Chamber. This has been an absolute blast. Oh, my gosh. So, wow, thank you. <laughs> Jill, I'm glad you've been here for the entire piece. Yes, and so have I. Yes. I'll, I'll be in touch with you 
soon, probably send something off to you in the next couple of days, and we'll just keep moving forward. Thank you, Dan. Cheers. Well, there you have it. Since recording that very special episode, I'm delighted to say that the Jam Scrapbook Part 2 is now live on that there internet. You can get it. Show notes of this podcast has all the details. And you'll also be pleased to know in the UK right now, hairdressers are now open once again. My thanks to Steve and to Jill for their amazing contribution on our podcast this week. Don't forget to share this episode on social media. Leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us to find new listeners to the show. Make sure you dig into their blogs and posts and photos and give them some love as well. You can tweet me at WellerFanPod on Twitter or Paul Weller Fan Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.